be doing a form. A couple of cheers for her, for Allie. Can we get a cheer? Yeah. Living with a Disability. That's tonight at Spanish Parlor at 9 p.m. One thing that I want to make you aware of, we do not have enough chapels uh, to accommodate all the groups and organizations uh, that come our way. So please pay attention in the student center when there are tables set up. We want to give you as many opportunities as possible to connect with ministries and organizations uh, that you might be passionate about. Last week I know Big Brother and Big Sister is here, so maybe you were interested in being a mentor. Uh, today there'll be uh, someone over there from Daybreak Asia. Uh, this, uh, if you are interested in maybe China or East Asia, and maybe after you graduate from college, uh, working in China and doing it as a ministry, just work in the business world there, you're going to want to visit with uh, the director there, Steve Norman. It's a cultural exchange firm to help recent U.S. college graduates find jobs and internships in China. And he is going to be in Spanish in uh, the Linda Whitley Lounge, excuse me, from 1130 to 1. So even if you're not a senior, uh, please feel free to come by and talk to Steve and find out more information. And we will try to continually put up slides for groups and organizations that are over there, though we can't always have a full chapel service for all of them. Uh, we want to make you aware of it. Well, this week, uh, you know, is, uh, hopefully most of you know, is uh, SSJ Week and their focus and emphasis to raise awareness to, for human trafficking. And our guest speaker today that they have uh, brought in is Reverend Jim Martin from uh, International Justice Mission. And let me just read a little bit about uh, Reverend Martin. Uh, before we continue our worship. Jim Martin is the National Director of Church Mobilization for International Justice Mission. IJM is a human rights agency that secures justice for victims of slavery, sexual exploitation, and other forms of violence and oppression. <coughs> IJM lawyers, investigators, and aftercare professionals work with local governments to ensure victim rescue, to prosecute perpetrators, and to strengthen the community and civic factors that promote functioning public justice systems. Mr. Martin works to move churches to a deeper level of level of understanding of God's heart for justice and to action on behalf of the many victims of the injustices around the world. Before joining IGM in 2008, Reverend Martin served as pastor of Compassion Ministries at the Three River Church in San Jose, California, where his main task included teaching, leading, and developing opportunities to mobilize the church in its mercy and justice ministry. So we'll have a chapel service today. He'll be having lunch with those who are part of Students for Social Justice. I believe that's in the President's Dining Room. SSJ students, nod your head if I'm right on that. I am right on that. And then today at uh, 3 o'clock, 3 to 4.30, an open session for everyone. Uh, it'll be a follow-up to his message this morning. God bless you. It, uh, the follow-up discussion will be what now? What steps can we take here in Quincy, Massachusetts uh, in regards to the issues that we're going through? It's just contagious. Uh, what steps can we now take? So that is in PV Lecture Hall, the basement of Angel from 3 to 4.30. That is open to everybody. Please come find out more information and uh, what we can do to respond. And, and Reverend Martin, by the end of this day, is going to help us all be able to do that better. Will you please stand as we continue our worship? And let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we again are thankful for the blessing and privilege it is to stop and gather together as a community and worship you. I now pray that our hearts and minds and ears be open, that we give our full attention to what you have for us today. We will glorify and praise you through our prayers, through the hearing of your word, through hearing the spoken word this morning. And that, but Lord, more importantly, may we also glorify you as we go our separate ways and take what we have learned and allow it to change us and change others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Um, Psalm 10, 
1 to 2 and 7 to 8. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, O God, you see trouble and grief. You consider it and take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are the helper, the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked, wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. There's a peace I've come to know Though my heart and flesh may fail There's an anchor for my soul I can say it is well Jesus has overcome In the grave is Victory is won. 
the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and heavy stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me. His blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life to and pray with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for bringing us all together today, this morning, to worship. We ask that you bring peace on our hearts, open our hearts and our minds, Lord, help us to hear your word. Thank you so much for blessing us each and every day of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It is uh, my privilege to be with you here this morning. My name is Jim Martin. As was said, and I actually grew up not very far from here in Norwood, Mass. I'm just delighted to be back home. I live in a D.C. area now, as I'll mention. Um, but I just want to jump right in this morning and get into the subject matter uh, that I want to talk about. I want to talk this morning about what may be two rather unfamiliar passions of God's this morning in the chapel. I want to talk about God's passion for the world, and I want to talk about God's passion for justice. Now, as I, I think about a student body like, uh, like yours, and I think about the kind of diversity that is the experience of coming to a college here uh, like, like this one, and, and even growing up in a place like Quincy, I think that it may be odd to talk about the, the God's passion for the world as an unfamiliar passion, but think about this with me just for a minute as we begin this morning. We could all, regardless of what language we speak, whatever, regardless of the culture that we grew up in, regardless of what customs we're familiar with, regardless of our ethnicity, we could all get on an airplane this, this morning and we could fly five hours, 10 hours, 15 hours to somewhere else in the world and we could get off that plane and be in a place that was so utterly different from anything that we were used to or we've experienced as to not seem so different as to not seem just like it's across the other side of the planet. It might seem it's from another universe entirely. 
We could get off a plane in a place where the culture that we are standing in all of a sudden is so different from the one, any of the ones that we've experienced growing up that all of our instincts seem wrong. The language would be unintelligible to us. So all this to say that the world we live in just is this vast, dizzying array of different kinds of places and people and cultures. And this is the world every day that God loves with his great love. And this is the world every day that God calls us to love. This is the world that God loves so much, in fact, that he sent his only son to die so that anybody in this world that didn't know about him and was not living a life reconciled to him could be reconciled to this loving God. This is how much God loves this world. This is how much God calls us to love this world. Now, I want to begin this morning with a question. So God loves this world with this great love, and God calls us to love this world with an ever-expanding love as we become the people that he created us to be. Let me begin with this question. In this world that God loves so much, what do you think might be the hardest thing for people to believe about God? I think it might simply be this. I think it might be simply the idea that God is good. Because there's so much suffering in the world, isn't there? I mean... You know, I'm sure, that just today, 25,000 children will die simply because their parents can't get them enough food. How are these children supposed to believe in a good God? 25,000 today, 25,000 tomorrow, and again the next day. How are their parents supposed to believe in a good God? Or what about the 1.5 billion people in our planet today that just don't have any access to health care in our country and all over the world? How are these people for whom now preventable illnesses are actually life-threatening, how are they supposed to believe in a good God? Or what about the millions of children who wake up every morning on the major urban centers of our world because home is just too violent a place for them, or home has somehow disappeared from underneath them, and so they wake up cold and wet in the streets? How are these children supposed to believe in a good God? And that leads to a further question, right? Because if we believe that God is good, as we do, then God must have a plan for revealing to this world his great goodness. And it turns out from the scriptures that he does. He does have a plan. It's a very clear and a simple plan. God's plan for revealing his goodness in the world to people who so desperately need to experience it, God's plan is us. It's you and me. We could go all over the place in the scriptures to find God's word on this very subject. We could read in Matthew 5 where Jesus says to his disciples, You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men and women that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, this may be a familiar passage to you, but just think about this for a minute. This is what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, I sure hope in the end you turn out to be the light of the world. Or maybe some of you. Or he's not even saying this. He's not even saying some of you, and I think you know who you are, are the light of the world. Right? He's saying, we're it. If you woke up this morning wondering if your life has any kind of significance in this world, know this, that God's plan for making it believable in his world that he is a good God is you. Right? 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this amazing thing. He says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal to the world through us. So my goodness, we get to be the ambassadors of God's goodness telling and showing a world that so desperately needs to know of it, that there is a loving God. And so, for thousands of years, the church has been doing this very good work of making it believable in the world that God loves the world, and that God is good. 
So we've been doing all kinds of things. If people are suffering because they're estranged from God and they don't know of Him, then we get to take this great news of a good God far and wide across our world and help people understand that there's a loving God who seeks to be reconciled with them and them to be reconciled with Him. If people are suffering in this world because they don't have enough food, then we get to mobilize and bring food in the good name of this God who loves people who are suffering because they're hungry. And we get to provide food in the name of Jesus. If people are suffering because they don't have appropriate shelter, then as complicated as that is, we get to bring the materials and build shelter and create a safe place for them in the name of the God that loves them so much. If people are suffering because they lack medical care, we've learned how to provide these things. We have people going into careers in medicine simply to serve people who don't have enough medical care. And this is all good. In so doing, the church has made it in the world more believable that God is good. But this morning, I want to talk about another kind of suffering that exists in our world today. And it's interesting because it's not necessarily about people who are suffering because they haven't heard the gospel or people who are suffering because they lack food or, or medical care or shelter. I want to talk this morning about people who are suffering simply because someone around them has enough power to oppress them. I want to talk about the victims of injustice in our world today. Victims who are victims simply because someone around them has chosen to abuse them and to oppress them because they have enough power to do so. But before, before I jump into this passion of God for justice, I want to work a little bit to define this concept of justice. Because especially for me as a white male growing up in this, in this country as I have, I, I can get to feeling like I'm sort of a victim of injustice every day, all day, right? I can, for example, I moved to D.C. about uh, 18 months ago, and driving in D.C. is a really interesting thing. For some reason, I don't know if it's the same way in Boston, I haven't driven here in a long time, but the, um, the people that work on the roads in D.C. have decided the best way to do this, the best time to do it, is during rush hour. So you'll be driving, is this the same here? You'll be driving down a road that's supposed to be three lanes, and, and it's rush hour, and you're trying to get to whatever appointment or get home or whatever it is, and the three lanes have been reduced to one because they're working on the other two at rush hour. And now, if you were a less pastoral-inclined soul than I am, you might experience this as rather frustrating, or it might even make you angry. So you're, you're driving down the road, you're driving down your one lane, you're waiting in this long line of traffic that just seems like it should not be a long line of traffic, and then you see up in front of you the place where, where there's the bottleneck and every, all the cars are going through one at a time, and soon it's going to be your turn, and you'll get to go, right? Because there's rules about these things. When it's your turn, you get to go. So inevitably, I'll get to this place where it's the bottleneck, and, and some person will come around in the breakdown lane, usually in a red car, and, <laughs> and they'll cut me off. They'll steal my right of way, and I'll feel like a victim of injustice. Well, just so you know, when the scriptures talk about injustice, this is not what they're talking about. When the scriptures talk about injustice, they talk about it simply as a category of sin. Injustice in the scriptures simply is the abuse of power. It's the abuse of power to take from someone else the good things that God intended them to have. Their life, their liberty, their dignity, or the fruit of their love, or of their labor. This is the biblical sin of injustice, the abuse of power. And you know, it exists, it's talked about all over the scriptures. We could go to all kinds of different places. Ecclesiastes 4, where Solomon is talking about the world that he sees under the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says this, I saw the tears of the oppressed, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors. This is the biblical sin of injustice he's talking about, the abuse of power. We could go back to Psalm 10 that was read this morning, and we could read this. Let me just read this to you again. 
He, the powerful, lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He, he catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. Now, I started reading the scriptures when I was about 18. And I don't know about you, but I would read passages like this and I would think, really? I mean, surely isn't that somewhat melodramatic? I mean, I guess I can come to some sort of understanding of a passage like this in a, in a spiritual sense, that we're all uh, entrapped by the, by the power of sin. And while I think that's true, I had a very hard time seeing that this might this passage like this and, and so many others might actually be literally true. Right? So while I think they are spiritually true, I'm here to say this morning that through uh, many of the experiences I've had since I was 18 and through my work with International Justice Mission, I've come to realize that there are many people in our world today who are living passages like this one in their literal truth. International Justice Mission is a Christian human rights organization that exists to take case referrals from missionaries and other workers working among the world's poor. Uh, uh, referrals of cases of violent oppression, where people are being violently abused. And we, we uh, use our Christian uh, professional investigators and lawyers and aftercare workers to to do uh, professional investigations into those situations and to mobilize local authorities to bring rescue. So as a result of my work with IJM, I've come to realize some of the very literal truth uh, and some people actually who've been living these, these uh, situations um, very literally. And I want to introduce you to just a few of them this morning. The first one is a young girl named Shama. Shama we met when she was about 10 years old, and a, and a traumatic thing had happened to her about three years before this. She, uh, she grew up in southern India, and uh, her mother was pregnant with one of her younger siblings, and as she was going into labor, it became clear that Shama's mother and the child inside her were in grave danger during the labor, and that if the doctor didn't come to attend the birth, it was quite likely that one or both of them would die. Now, the problem was that the only way to get a doctor to come to attend the birth was to pay a $35 doctor visit fee, and Shama's family, like so many families in our world, lives on about a dollar a day. They've never seen $35 together in one place at one time. The only way to get that kind of money is to go to the local village money lender, who will be happy to lend you $35, provided you sell your daughter Shama to him to work rolling cigarettes for him. So this then becomes Shama's life. She sits in the same place on the floor every day for 12 to 14 hours, and she rolls cigarettes by hand. If she doesn't roll 2,000 cigarettes a day, she gets beaten. There are schools in her community, but she doesn't get to go to them because there's just no time for that. And the cruel trick of the whole thing is actually that she can never escape. She can, uh, the, the idea is that she pays the $35 back and she's free, but the, of course her slave owner has structured things so that that can never happen. He pays her very little money at all, and from that he takes back money to feed that, that she, so that he, uh, for the meals that he feeds her every day. So that when we meet her three years later, she's actually deeper in debt than the day that she was enslaved. She'll actually pass this condition on to her own children. Now, this kind of slavery, of course, is completely illegal in, in southern India where Shama grew up, but do you have any guess, any, any guess as to how many people are living Shama's existence in India alone today? The best estimates we have is that there are somewhere around 14 million people living Shama's life. How are they, how is Shama supposed to believe in a good God? Or what about David? David's a, a young man from Nairobi in Kenya, and he's the kind of guy that everybody just loves. He, he brings kids with him to church on Sunday. He volunteers at the local aid hospice. And he works at a local video store. And one day he's walking home from work, 
and uh, there are some police that have been drinking at a local cafe, and they've run out of money, and they, they decide what they're going to do to get more beer money is to extort it from the local population. So David just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and the police pull over right next to him, and they say, give us all your money, or we'll charge you with a crime, and we'll throw you in jail. David doesn't want to go to jail, so he gives them all his money, about $1.50 in shillings, in Kenyan shillings. And they say they're going to let him go, but as he's walking away from the car, one of the policemen pulls out his revolver and shoots David twice once in the arm and once in the side, and he collapses on the side of the road as the car drives away. Somehow he looks up and sees that right across the street there's a medical clinic, and he picks himself up and carries himself to the medical clinic where he begins to receive treatment. But the bones in his arm were so shattered by the first bullet that it had to be amputated. And so now he's sitting uh, post-operation in this clinic dealing with an infection, and the police show up again. They realize he's, he's been treated and he's going to survive, and they charge him with a crime anyway and put him in jail. So now David is in, waiting in jail, dealing with this post-operative infection, and he's charged with this crime that's called robbery with violence. Now in Kenya, robbery with violence is not a bailable crime, so he's going to sit in jail until the conclusion of his trial, whenever that is. And if he's convicted, robbery with violence in Kenya carries a mandatory death sentence. Now, it's estimated that somewhere between 50 and 85% of people in jails in the developing world are there without charge and without trial. How are they, how is David supposed to believe in a good God? Especially when the very people who are supposed to be there to protect him are the ones that are oppressing him. Or finally, what about Jyoti? Jyoti also grew up in India, in the northern part, and she uh, grew up in just a, a, a very abusive and chaotic home and decided at about age 14 that she'd had enough and she ran away. But she didn't get very far. She got to the local train station and was just clearly distraught and didn't know what to do. And three women approached her and they said, Jyoti, you should come with us. We could get you a good job in the big city. You could work in a restaurant, and uh, you can make money and support yourself. She says she didn't really trust these women, but she didn't have any other options either. So she went with them, and, and sure enough, on the train, she was given some tea that had been drugged, and she didn't even wake up until three days later to realize that she'd been sold into a brothel for about $285. The keeper of the brothel said, your job now will be to work for me to pay off this debt I've incurred, I, I've incurred in purchasing you. She said, well, I'm 14 years old. I, I don't do this kind of work. I, I won't. And so they locked her in a room, and they proceeded to starve her and to beat her for a period of time until finally she gave in. And from the day she gave in, she was required to serve 20 to 30 customers a day and never allowed to leave the confines of the brothel. All of this, of course, is taking place in a city with one of the highest indexes of HIV AIDS in our, in our world pardon me, today. It's estimated that somewhere between 800,000 and 1 million new women and children are forced into prostitution every year. How are they? How is Jyoti supposed to believe in a good God? And what about us? How are we supposed to react to stories and statistics like these? How are we supposed to respond to this kind of issue, this kind of concern? It's, it's thorny, it's complex, it's taboo. These are issues that we don't often talk about in the body of Christ. Well, a good place for us to begin would be to go back to the scriptures and ask the question, how does God feel about these issues? What happens in the heart of God when, when he knows of people like Jyoti and like Shauna and like David? And for this, we could go back to Psalm 10. That would be a great place to begin. In fact, I want to recommend Psalm 10 to everybody. This weekend, this next week, if, uh, if you want to spend some time just sort of steeping in the reality of God's heart for justice, this second unfamiliar passion of God's, 
then just spend some time. Get up in the morning and take eight minutes and read through Psalm 10 for the next five days. Bless you, sister. For the next five days and see what that does for your understanding of and your own heart for God's passion for justice. Let me read to you this section, uh, the last two verses. God says this, or the psalmist says this, pardon me. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. This is good news. This is good news that the God of the universe cares about this kind of injustice, and he wants it to stop. And that actually matters. So much so that at the beginning of, the, of, the, of our organization, of iJam's existence, about 12 years ago, uh, 10 years ago actually, the founder wrote this book, uh, Gary Haugen wrote this book called The Good News About Injustice. And when people saw it at first, they said, the good news about injustice, what could that possibly be? And the idea is simply this. The good news is that God hates it and that that matters. The fact that God is against it actually matters, both to the victims and it should matter to us. Listen to this, uh, to Psalm 3510. I don't have a slide for this, but listen to what the psalmist says. In distinguishing the God that we love and serve from any other would-be God in the universe, this is what the psalmist says. My whole being, my whole self will exclaim, Who is like you, O Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them, the poor and needy from those who rob them. This is something that actually distinguishes the nature and character of our God from any other would-be God. But this raises a question, doesn't it? If God hates it and he wants it to stop, if this is in the very nature of God to care about and to, to deal with situations of injustice, then surely he must have a plan for bringing injustice to an end, right? And it turns out, actually, from the scriptures, God does have a plan. God's plan for ending injustice in the world today is us. It's you and me. Now, you may look around and think, well, you know, sure, we can deal with the, the problem of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. We can deal with the problem of hunger and, 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 and medical care. But these issues are just different. These issues are, are more complex and, and maybe even more dangerous. But the reality is we are God's plan. And he doesn't have another plan. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, O woman, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, how kind of God to take everything that he requires of us and reduce it down to a list of three things. But let's not move too quickly over the idea that the first thing God requires of us is that we do justice. Isaiah, in the beginning of his book of prophecy, says this thing in Isaiah 1.17. He simply says, learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. This is what the prophet Isaiah says. We you and I are God's plan for seeking justice. But you know, if you're like me, maybe you hear these stories and you hear these statistics and, and you look around the church and you think, this just doesn't seem like the best plan. Maybe even these kinds of stories, because of your own background, because of the concerns that you grew up with, just bring despair to your heart. And if that's true, then you are like me. Because I, I hear these stories, even given my, the work that I do every day, I hear these stories and and sometimes I just find despair and not hope in my heart. But you know, Jesus has left us a series of great and encouraging stories for us to understand that he is the one who is responsible, that God is the one who is responsible for getting this work done through his church. And I just want to talk briefly about one of these stories. Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000. You guys know this story, right? It's in, it's in most three of the Gospels. So 
So Jesus is out teaching, right? And, and as so often happens when he's teaching, crowds begin to follow. And soon there's thousands of people, over 5,000 people, just riveted to Jesus as he's teaching. And the disciples come at the end of the day because it's been all day that he's been teaching. And they, they come to Jesus, and, and uh, they're probably tired from doing, like, crowd management all day. And they, they come to Jesus, and they say, uh, Jesus, this, is, this has been great, you know, maybe a little long, but it's been great. Um, and, and now what we should do is send all these people home because they're hungry, and they can go get something to eat. And for some reason, Jesus says, no, we're not going to do it that way today anyway. Uh, what I would like for you to do, disciples, is I, I would like for you to feed them. Why don't you get them something to eat? And you've got to love how patient the disciples are to explain to Jesus what he clearly just doesn't grasp about the situation. So they say, uh, we would love to do that, Jesus. But you see, there are 5,000 hungry people, and it would take, oh, I don't know, a half year's wages to feed them all. And we, we just didn't bring that kind of cash with us. Uh, today, so clearly it can't be our problem. So back to you, Jesus. And then Jesus asks them a much more challenging question. Okay, he says, you don't have all the resources you need to feed everyone, but what do you have? Much, much harder question to answer. So they go and they look and see what they do have, and it turns out what they have is one little boy with a sack lunch, maybe that his mom packed for him so he could go hear Jesus teach that day. And this then is presented as the, the corporate resources to meet the huge need of all the thousands of hungry people. And this is what happens in my head when I read this passage. I see like a flat rock, and somebody comes up with a little bag of stuff, and they dump it out on the flat rock, and anticlimactically outroll five loaves and two fish. And the Apostle Andrew looks at the five loaves and two fish, and he says the obvious. He says, well, what are these among so many people? Clearly, this is just an overwhelming problem, and these meager resources are not going to meet and satisfy the hunger of all these people. We can't do it. And then Jesus says, will you give them to me? Those are his two questions. What do you have, and will you give it to me? And you know the story, right? Jesus takes the loaves, he takes the fish, he blesses them, he breaks them, he distributes them to the crowd through his disciples, and everyone eats their fill. And then they collect up the leftovers, and how much do they have? More than they started with. Jesus was eager to do the miracle if his people would just come forward with a little bit of obedience, right? It's interesting that he would do it this particular way, right? Because isn't there a, a lengthy Old Testament precedent for how you feed thousands of hungry people? You just drop manna on them, right? And they, they take care of themselves, right? Why would Jesus choose to do this miracle this way? I think maybe one reason is that he wanted to give one little boy a really cool day, right? Imagine this little guy walking home thinking to himself, can't wait for my mom to ask me if I ate my whole lunch. <laughs> what a great story. And what a different story he would have had had he gone off by himself and eaten his lunch behind a rock. Right? This is the God that we serve, the God that longs to act miraculously if we will just bring forward what little obedience we have. It's the same God that we serve together today. We get to learn this in a profound way at the beginning of our organization, actually as we were getting to know Shama. We heard about her situation, and we, sent, uh, we were able to send a group of lawyers over to India to document her case, that bonded labor slavery is illegal by, by Indian law, so we went over to document the case and just demonstrate to, to the authorities that it was illegal. And in documenting Shama's case, we found 10 other cases of children held in bonded labor right around her. So we did what we could, we documented those 10, but then in doing that, we uncovered a, a, just a whole syndicate of bonded labor slavery happening in that section of India. Hundreds and hundreds of children just trapped 
and we felt completely overmatched by the situation. So we did the only thing we could, which was package up Shalma's case and the other ten into a little report, a little lunch of a report, really, and we brought it into the court uh, and on a Friday made an appointment to see the judge the following Monday to tell him about these cases. And all weekend we just prayed that God would bless this little lawyer lunch of a report. And somebody said, oh, we should go to church and find some other believers to pray with, which was hard enough because this section of India was about 2% Christian at this point, but somewhat miraculously we found a church. So the team goes to, to that church on a Sunday night in India, and who should turn out to be the guest preacher at that particular church in that particular part of India on that particular Sunday? But the judge we're waiting to see on Monday morning. It turns out he's a believer. It turns out he doesn't just want to free Shama. He cares about this issue. He frees Shama, the other ten, and a whole syndicate of 494 children on one day, out of slavery, into freedom, back into schools. And he's so celebrated for this work that he's made the special commissioner for bonded slavery in that entire part of India and takes on a new charge of, of, of just freeing children trapped in bonded slavery. And clearly... All of this can only happen because everyone at International Justice Mission is an absolute genius. No, wait. Clearly, this can only happen because we serve a God of justice who longs to act miraculously in this world if we would just bring forward whatever obedience we have. Similarly, I'm just happy to tell you that David is no longer languishing in a Kenyan prison. We were able to send a Kenyan lawyer. IJM was able to find out about his case and assign a, a, a Kenyan lawyer to... To, uh, to David's case, who found it very easy to prove that the crimes David was charged with actually happened after he'd been shot and while he was receiving treatment in the clinic. There was no way that it could have been David who committed these crimes. So David is no longer facing charges, but I can tell you who is. The police who did this to him. The police had to face charges for the abuses they, they committed against David. David actually has just finished law school and is now helping others in his community find access to justice. This is the kind of story that can change the calculation of what people feel like they can get away with in David's community. I'm also happy to tell you that Jyoti is no longer languishing inside the brothel where she was trapped. This is the way she tells her story. She says, one day, another young woman at the, at the uh, brothel approached her and said, Jyoti, uh, I think I know a God who may be able to help, and his name is Jesus. Jyoti was a, a young Hindu woman, and she was in such distress that she, she was willing to pray to anyone or anything who might be able to help. And not knowing how to pray, she simply prayed, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. How does Jesus answer a prayer like that in a place like this? We actually got to see this time, because it wasn't more than a week of Jyoti beginning to pray this way that an IJM undercover investigator showed up at her brothel and was able to document her story take it to a local secure police contact who, with local authorities, was able to mobilize a, a, an operation on Jyoti's brothel and get her out of her nightmare, along with a few other girls, and deliver her eventually into Christian aftercare, where, accept, where she accepted Jesus as her personal Lord and Savior. Now, for us, sometimes those words, personal Lord and Savior, might seem a little bit abstract, but not for Jyoti, because she saw God show up in her nightmare and deliver her. She was so transformed by her experience that when she heard we were going back several months later into that very same brothel on another operation, she said, please, let me come with you. So she came back to that place of nightmare, and she helped us rescue several other girls. One of them was this girl named Kalindi, and Kalindi approached our investigator, who was wearing undercover photography video equipment, and said, you need to come with me right now, because they, the, the brothel keepers were tipped off that this raid was happening, and they took the youngest of the girls and hid them in a place in the basement. And I know where they are, and we can free them if we go right now. So they went down to a room in the basement, 
And this is what they saw. several things. I want to just go back to those two questions that Jesus asked. What do you have and will you give it to me? One of the things that we all have sitting here is something that you may not be aware of. It's influence. We work a lot with lawmakers on Capitol Hill and we want to make them consistently aware of this issue and we go in and talk to them in their offices and they say strange things to us like, oh yeah, modern uh, slavery and human trafficking, those are terrible, terrible issues, but I don't hear about those issues from my constituents. And we just want to change that. So this card that is on the pews is, uh, is alerting our lawmakers of a, the CPCA bill, the Child, Child Protection Compact Act that's going through Congress now. It's a bill to further increase funding for victims of trafficking, like the ones that we've talked about this morning. I would love for you to sign this card for Senator Kerry or Senator Kirk, and, and we will take these back to D.C. and actually deliver them to their offices. So take a couple minutes, fill out this card. There's a checkbox on there below where you would put your name and your email address. If you check that, then we will also keep your contact information and stay in touch with you and keep you posted on further operations. There are resources out back that I would love to give you for further study because I think this needs to be a transformational experience for us because I have one final question I want to ask you. In a world that is full of people like Joti and Shama and David, have you ever wondered why it is that you and I have been given so much? Why it is that our lives are so different? I want to answer that question with one final story. When I was 10 or 11, I was one of those kids that was like all skin and bones. We, I think we call those people ectomorphs now, right? There was no, I was like skin and bone and with no discernible muscle on my body. And uh, add to that, I have this like abnormally large head. So in junior high school, I looked like a lollipop, like walking through. And that's just not a good way to go through junior high school, really. And so I became fascinated with this show on TV called The Wide World of Sports. It's the precursor to ESPN, right? And they used to show these oddball sports. And one of the sports I got introduced to was this sport called bodybuilding. I'd never seen it before. And this was fascinating to me. You've seen bodybuilders, right? Massive, thick necks and big arms. And they were just the opposite of me, right? They had more muscle in one of their eyebrows than I had, like, in my right leg. They were just huge. And I would think, what would it be like to go through life? that much power? What would that be like to walk down the halls of a school looking like that? But then I realized as I grew up, there's a really important question you need to ask about bodybuilders, and it's simply this. What's it all for? Right? Because for a bodybuilder, it's only for one thing. It's for, it's for pose. Because that's what they do. They pose. And all that power and, and muscle mass only comes in handy once or twice a year when there's a crisis in the kitchen and nobody can get the lid off the jam jar. <laughs> and the bodybuilder can run into the kitchen and pop the lid off the jam jar. Yay. <laughs> so here's my prayer for myself and for all of you. It's that with all of the power and privilege, with all of the access to future and, and possibility that we have, that we wouldn't simply settle for opening jam jars. That we would allow God to infuse us 
with bigger dreams in it. That we would allow God to align our passions with his own passions and plant in us the things that he is passionate about and make us more and more into the people that he created us to be. Let me pray quickly for us as we go. Jesus, thank you that you do include us in this work, that you, as an expression of your grace to us, uh, involve us in these things that matter so much to you. And we ask that you would transform us, God, into the very people that you have made us to be and that this would be for your glory. In Jesus' name. Halls, next step. Please leave the cards on the pew. Students from SSJ, if you go around and pick. Nope. Uh, Angel, basement of Angel.